Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter, th- or Philippians chapter 4, I'm sorry. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. We are not finishing up Philippians this week. We have one more sermon after this, okay? But we're almost done. This is the second to last sermon, Lord willing, in Philippians for this series. But Philippians chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 10 through 20 as we continue to explore what it means to be united together as gospel citizens to spread the gospel as a church family. That's what Philippians is about. And so... Verses 10 through 20 will get us on our way. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible um, under your chair or the chair in front of you. It looks like this. It's a black one, and it is on page 1042. Page 1042 in the black pew Bible. Hear then the word of God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Let me reread that because I want to re um, Translate that. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am strengthened in all circumstances through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, that is our prayer, that you would, that all glory, honor, and praise would be to you forever and ever, and not just forever into eternity, but right now in this moment. We pray, Father, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to material gain, even as we're talking about the giving of material gain. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your beauty, your majesty, your goodness, your strength, and your provision. We pray, Father, that you would unite our hearts with a singular focus to fear your name. And we pray, Father, with great desperation and a sense of need that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love, with the love of Christ, the love purchased at Calvary, where he took our sins and bore our judgment and gave us his righteousness. We pray, Lord, and rest in that covenant love, that you would satisfy us with that love all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Am I really making a difference 
Are you really making a difference in life? I mean, we think about this great war between heaven and hell, Satan and God, demons and angels, the church and the world. And we don't want to waste our lives. We understand that there's this great battle between good and evil, and, and God, God is the ultimate champion, right? God is going to win, and yet God has a very specific and significant role for us to play. We're not the main character in the story, but we are in the story, and we do have a role to play in this struggle, in this great struggle. And yet, it's easy in life to get distracted, distracted to the point of confusion, Confused about um, whether we're actually doing any good, what the battle really is. Um, This distraction can actually get us to start to feel lethargic and uh, feel like Christian living is not that big of a deal. Even though deep down, if we ask you, hey, is your life a big deal before God? Like, is it a big deal in light of eternity? Of course we should say biblically, yes. Does Does it mean anything? Is it significant? Yes. But oftentimes, we get so distracted by the regular tasks and grind of the day that we wonder, is this really that big of a deal? Is my life, is my Christian living even that big of a deal? So the question is, will we be distracted and discouraged toward uselessness? Or will we have the clarity to to keep pushing forward and to keep investing our lives? In this passage, the Philippians have staked their investment in Paul. Not just once, but several times. They have decided that they're going to give of their money, to give of their resources, to give of their time, to give of their lives, to help Paul with the mission of spreading the gospel. They have invested themselves. And Paul writes this section to thank them for investing themselves. This is a big thank you and a big encouragement on, yes, thank you for investing. Yes, thank you for giving. Thank you for sharing. And I want to encourage you in your sharing. And so here's the main idea for you, brothers and sisters, because as I look out on you, I see saints in Christ who have invested their lives for the Great Commission. I see saints in front of me who have given their lives to spread the gospel and have directed their lives. I mean, you're here this Sunday. Why are you here? To continue to direct your life towards the glory of God and the good of the world and the spread of the gospel? You have invested your life. And so the main idea is this. You've invested your life well. So invest it more. That's what I want to say to you this this morning. You've invested your life for Christ and his kingdom well. So invest it more. And to do this, for, for me to encourage you to do this, I want you to be encouraged in your sacrificial partnership for six reasons. And uh, if you're taking notes, there are six reasons here why you should be encouraged regarding you investing your life. If you, don't, um, if, if you have a bulletin, just go ahead and grab the inside of the bulletin. There's an insert here. And now you get two sides, okay? Sometimes you get one side. You have a little bit more space here. You have two sides to take notes here on six reasons why you should be encouraged in your sacrificial partnership, your sacrificial investment for the kingdom. Reason number one is in verse 10. Why should you be encouraged that you have given and invested for the kingdom? Verse 10 says, Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. So Paul says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Why should we be encouraged in our giving? Why should we be encouraged in our investing our lives for the partnership of the gospel? Because when you invest your life for the gospel and you partner with God's people and you give, 
that causes other people to rejoice in who? Rejoice in the Lord. Here, Paul rejoices in the Lord. And this is one of the famous commands in Philippians 3, right? Philippians 3, 1, rejoice in the Lord. And you know Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. This is a command, rejoice in the Lord. And Paul here is saying, hey, I'm not just commanding you guys to rejoice in the Lord. I also rejoice in the Lord. Not only do I rejoice in the Lord, it says here in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul is overflowing with joy here. This is not little joy in Christ. This is great joy in Christ. Now, do we always have great joy in Christ? Are we always greatly rejoicing in Christ every minute of our lives? Absolutely not. We are not doing that. We do have seasons, don't we? We have seasons of ups and downs in our joy in the Lord. Now, we do, don't we aim to rejoice in the Lord? That is our aim, right? We want to overwhelmingly be joyful and glad in the Lord. But... There's a few hindrances to this joy in the Lord, and we just got to be real. One is the fact that we live in a broken world, and there is serious pain in this world. There is serious grief in this world. This world is broken by sin and the results of sin and the curse, and so we feel the brokenness of this world, and that tempts us to have less joy in the Lord. Secondly, our own hearts are calloused. We don't, we're, not, we're not in a sinless body yet, right? So even though God shows us his glory and its fullness, our, we have a cap on our own joy because of our own sinfulness, because of our own limitations. Not, and even if we were sinless without glorified bodies, because we don't have glorified bodies, we couldn't even contain all that joy anyways. And we get easily distracted by things in this world. So Paul rejoices greatly in the Lord, but we need to be realistic that our joy in the Lord is not always great and overflowing, right? It's not. Now, um, that's why John Piper, among others, John Piper wrote a book called, not only did he write a book, Desiring God, talking about your joy in the Lord, he wrote another book called, When I Don't Desire God. Because there are times where, if I'm just honest, looking in the mirror, looking before the Lord, if I'm praying, I'm not happy in the Lord right now. I'm not, as, I'm not overwhelmingly happy in the Lord. And so, though we acknowledge that our, our joy can sometimes be broken, here we see that when people partner with us in gospel ministry, or when we partner with others, we can actually bring them great joy in the Lord. So, looking again at verse 10, he says, Why does he rejoice in the Lord greatly? Because once again, you, re- you renewed your what? Your care for me. You cared about me. You shared with me. Uh, later on, he's going to say in verse um, 15, or yeah, verse 15, that you shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. In verse 16, he says, you've done this several times. And, and, and remember, where's Paul writing this letter from? From prison, right? And who was, he, who, who was sent from Philippi to Paul? A man named Epaphroditus, right? And remember in Philippians 2, Epaphroditus almost died? Died to do what? To bring the gift, to bring the resources, to bring the, to bring the food, to bring the money, to bring the clothes, to bring what Paul needed in prison. Epaphroditus went there and he almost died to give to Paul. And Paul's like, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because you, brothers and sisters, you have pulled your money together, you have pulled your resources together, and you have given to my need, and that causes me great joy in the Lord because of your partnership in the gospel. So joy in the Lord is not just a me and Jesus, read my Bible, and then get joy in the Lord. That's true. But joy in the Lord comes from the people of God. Joy in the Lord comes from you having others in this church family share their life with you and partner with you for the gospel. And when that happens, you get joy in the Lord. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 6 and 7, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. So Titus is, is encouraging Paul just by coming, but Titus has the encouragement of the other saints in Corinth. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more, Paul says. Isn't it strange that though our joy is ultimately in God, it is also tied to the people of God? It's tied to us sharing life as church members here. Or if you're from another church with your church family, it's tied to the fact that other people rejoice with you and pray with you and are concerned about you and try to meet your needs. Paul's joy here is not to say, my joy is finally dependent on you, as if you're Jesus. Our joy is not finally dependent on people. And, and, and Paul's saying, not only that, my needs are not even finally dependent on you. Look at verse 11 through 13. He's saying, well, don't get this twisted. I'm happy, I'm so happy in Christ that you guys have been meeting my needs. But, verse 11, I don't say this out of need. I'm not saying this to give you a guilt trip, verse 11, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able, I am strengthened, is a better translation, in all circumstances to do all things. I'm strengthened to, to be content in all circumstances through him who strengthens me. So I'm not saying this, I'm so happy that you guys have helped me because I'm trying to give you a little guilt trip because I want more money. I'm not saying it out of that. I'm not saying it out of sense of need. I am content in Christ. And even through you guys, I have been made content in Christ. And so thank you for your gift, but I'm not being self-centered here. I don't have some ulterior secret motive where I'm trying to cajole you to give more money for my selfish ends. I am content. But even in my contentment, I am so thankful. I love Jesus more because I have had a fresh experience of Christ's kindness to me through your love and through your partnership in the gospel. So people rejoice when you share your life with them in partnership with the gospel, when you invest yourself in the gospel ministry. So what does this mean for you as a Christian? Christian, be encouraged by your effect on other Christians. Be encouraged by your effect on other Christians. Don't judge your effect by what you can just see immediately. You don't know what's going on in the other people's lives, but you have an effect on them. And as a church family, what does this mean? We need to rejoice in Christ through the ministry of others. Rejoice in Christ when you pray for the other members of this church. Rejoice in Christ when we give offering. Rejoice in Christ when we meet each other's needs, when we share prayer requests. Let us be a church that rejoices greatly in Christ because of the investment we have in the gospel together. Okay, so the main idea again, you've invested yourself well, so invest yourself more. Why? Because it causes people to rejoice. Second reason, second reason, verse 14. Still, even though I'm content with everything, still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. You did good. You did a good job. You did well by partnering with me in, in this. So what, what is Paul saying here? Second reason why we should be encouraged to keep giving is because we accomplish good. You have accomplished good. For some of you brothers and sisters, you just gave offering today. Some of you gave last week. Some of you gave a few weeks ago. Guess what? You have done good. You do well. You have done well. So the second reason here is you've accomplished good. You should be encouraged to invest yourself more because you've accomplished, you have accomplished good. That's what he says here. You did well. We were created, Ephesians 2.10 says, um, 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God what? Planned or prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are made to do good works, not just think good thoughts, not just feel good feelings. We were made to actually accomplish good things. And Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, when you have invested yourself in the gospel ministry, you have done well. You've done one of the good things that God has prepared for you to do. We were made to do good things. What does, God, what, what does Jesus say we want to hear at the end of our lives? Well done, good and what? Faithful servant. Well done. You've done well. You've done well. You've done good things. You've accomplished things. It wasn't meaningless when we passed the offering. It wasn't meaningless when you met that person's need. You've done well. That's what you were made to do. Galatians 6.10. If you're in Philippians, just turn to the left to Galatians. You go Philippians, go back to the left, Ephesians, and then Galatians. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Let us work for the good of all, especially those who um, are of the household of faith. So, brothers and sisters, do well in partnering with your Christian family for the gospel. Now, it says, go back to Philippians 4, verse 14. It says, still you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. So how did they do well? By partnering with Paul in his hardship. What is his hardship? Where is he again? He's where? In prison. So I have needs. You have partnered. You have met my needs. I'm trying to spread the gospel here in the prison as I am in prison for the gospel. You have not just kind of sat and been busy with your own life. You have been caring about me and you have been meeting my needs. And so in that sense, you have become a partner with me. Look at Philippians 1.7. What does Philippians 1.7 say? Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, Philippians, because I have you in my heart and you are all what? What are you in verse 7? You're all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You guys are my partners by your care, by your sharing, by our fellowship, by our salvation. We are partners. And then if you look at Philippians 4, verse 18, in our passage for this morning, 418, he says, he says, I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. You guys are partners with me. I just got your gift, and I'm thankful for it. You guys have done well in partnering with me. That is the form of the New Testament. If you're a Christian, you are saved by grace, to quote what's right here behind me. You're saved from sin and death by grace, through faith, in Christ, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what you were saved from, sin, by God. And yet, you were saved for good works. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. And your good works, the New Testament Christian is a connected Christian. The New Testament Christian is a cooperating Christian. Look at 3 John. Keep your finger here in Philippians. Go to the right to 3 John 5 through 8. To the very back of your Bible. Almost to Revelation. So if you go to Revelation, just go back two books before Revelation. You'll see Jude and 3 John. Go to Revelation 1 and just go back two pages. 3 John. We're pursuing the idea here that the New Testament Christian is a connected Christian. 
Look at 3 John, verse 5. Dear friend, John writes, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be what? Co-workers with the truth. We are partners. We are co-workers with the truth when we support those who are going out spreading the gospel, whether professional career missionaries or non-professional career missionaries. It doesn't have to be a career missionary. It's for the sake of the gospel. But a New Testament Christian is not a parochial Christian. A New Testament Christian is not a shrinking-minded Christian who just thinks about himself and Jesus, or himself, Jesus, and his church, or himself, Jesus, and his denomination. A Christian thinks about the spread of the gospel everywhere, and he wants to partner for the spread of the fame of Christ everywhere. That's what partnership is. Now, they partner, and go back to Philippians 4, they partnered with Paul in his hardship, in his persecution, and now in his imprisonment. And we read that they have a track record of partnership. Look at verse 15 of Philippians 4. And you Philippians know that in, my early, in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except who? Except you alone. They were the only church supporting Paul. And then verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts to my needs several times, not even just once. It's not like you, oh, we, we took care of Paul and now we're, we're moving on with our lives. You guys repeatedly checked in on me. You repeatedly found out how I was doing and you repeatedly met my needs. This is a church that has a track record of partnership. A church that doesn't just care about their own local church, but cares about the gospel spreading everywhere and supporting missionaries. So, individual Christian, member of this church, thank you for all of the good you've accomplished. You have accomplished good in your life. Your life has not been wasted if you're a Christian. If you've, given, if you've, if you've encouraged another Christian, if you've given to the spread of the gospel, you have not wasted, that was not a waste. You have accomplished good work. You have partnered in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that your good deeds have accomplished good. Don't let Satan distract you as if it's, because it's routine, because we meet together every week, you might think it's just a routine. But you're accomplishing good with what you have given. And as a church family, may we as a church be filled with good works to God's glory. Children, children, listen up. The good you do now for the spread of the gospel counts. You don't have to be a grown-up to do good. You don't have to be a grown-up to do good. You can do good for Jesus right now by the way you give your life and the way you give your resources, the way you give your mind and your thoughts and your friendships for the spread of the gospel. You can do good now. So why should we, we, you've invested yourself well, invest yourself more. Why? Because it causes joy for other people in Christ. Secondly, because it accomplishes good. Thirdly, because it increases fruit to your account. Because it increases fruit to your account. Look at chapter four, verse 17. Verse 17 says, not that I seek the gift. So you guys have been so good. You've been giving so much, Paul says. And it's not that I seek the gift, but what do I seek? The profit that is increasing to whose account? To your account, right? Not to mine. Paul's saying, I'm not self-centered here. I'm not like this. Uh, I'm not like a TV preacher who's just putting up, hey, just five more dollars, some good seed money here. If you give, then you're going to be rich. 
you know, and they, they, they start trying to cajole you and coerce you to give money so that they can get lots of their private jets, their big mansions, right, and just start rolling in the money. Creflo Dollar, I mean, his name, Creflo, this is called the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel, which is a false gospel. It's a satanic gospel. People doing it for money. Paul's saying, it's not for my own profit. I'm not doing this for me. I'm not asking for money for me. I'm not self-centered here. I'm doing this for your gain, for your account. What does he mean by that? Looking at the verse again, he says, I don't seek this for my, I don't seek the gift. I seek the profit. Now, another word for profit there, a more literal translation. Does anyone have a different translation? It's also in the footnote for the CSB. What does Paul seek? The what? Not just the profit. Anyone see it there in the footnote? The fruit. The fruit. I seek ever-increasing fruit or I seek ever-increasing profit to your account. Now, think about fruit for a second. When you have a fruit on a tree, what does the fruit have inside? Seeds, right? The fruit falls to the ground. What happens to the seed? It goes into the ground, at least in theory, and then it creates more, more plants, right? And then more. And so, in other words, fruit by its nature is meant to multiply, right? Fruit is meant to increase, it's like an investment. If you invest in a stock or something and you invest and you're, you're, you're hoping for exponential growth, right? You're, you're hoping for growth. And so what Paul's saying is, you know what I want for you? I don't want you to just have fruit. I want you to have fruit that is ever increasing, that is constantly multiplying, that grows and grows to your account. So Paul uses a business term here that has the idea of compound interest. So what is the fruit, here's the question, what is the fruit or the profit Paul wants for the Philippians? Here's one uh, commentator's answer. Compound interest of ongoing spiritual progress and God's blessing before the second coming. That's what Paul wants. But uh, let me ask the question this way, because I don't think that answers the question well. Does Paul want their final rewards in the new earth and the final judgment? Or does Paul want them to... um, or does Paul want immediate spiritual maturity and joy in Christ now? What does he want for them? When he says, I want profit, it says here, I want profit that is increasing to your account. What is, what is the profit Paul wants? Does he want that final reward when they get to the, the judgment? Or does he want profit in terms of joy in Christ now, spiritual maturity now, spiritual progress now? What does Paul want for them through their giving? How many of you say it's the final rewards? Some of you say final rewards. How many of you say it's the present experience of joy in Christ and spiritual growth? All right, some of you. How many of you say both? Okay, some of you say both. Well, let's, is, there, is there Bible on this? Does the Bible talk about reward and some... Does the Bible talk about us having an account where we're going to have rewards in the new heavens and the new earth? It does, actually. Listen to Matthew 6, 19 and 21. Turn there, actually. Let's turn there. Let's, let's get this in our souls. Let's get this heavenly mindset. We're citizens of heaven. So let, let's keep your finger in Philippians. Go to Matthew 6, 19 and 21, and listen to what Jesus says here. Okay? If you, if you can't turn there, don't worry. Just listen. But if you can, that's, that's good, too. Matthew 6, 19 and 21 says this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
So store up for yourselves treasures in heaven is the command. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 to the right of Philippians. Or you could listen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. This is Paul telling Timothy as a church leader what to do with his church. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, of earthly wealth, but on God. Set their hope on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good and to be rich in what? Good works. To be generous and willing to share. Storing up, here's the key, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Why does Paul want their gift? Why does Paul want them to give? Why is he encouraging them to give? Why does he say, you've invested yourself well, invest yourself still more? Because it increases fruit to your account on the final judgment day. You are laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven to your account. And Paul wants you to enjoy that because guess guess what's gonna happen to your earthly treasures? It's gonna be gone. It's gonna be gone. But your, your heavenly treasures will never be gone. They are permanent for you to enjoy God and glorify God and treasure God with them for an eternity. So Paul says, you've done well in investing. Philippian church. You've done well, Bethany Baptist Church, in investing. Invest still more because of the coming age. But it's not just the final reward. Is there something to the fact that we get present fruit? Don't we get some present fruit and joy when we give now? Sure we do. We just read, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not just talking about the final blessing, but immediate spiritual fruit um, and joy now, a fresh experience of, of gladness. 1 Timothy 4.8 says this. You guys are in 1 Timothy, actually, right? In 1 Timothy 6, so just go back a page. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, um, For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So godliness and giving and generosity and sacrificially investing yourself now has benefit now. It gives fruit now. It actually makes you more mature now. And the more mature now, the more you invest. And the more you invest, the more you grow. And the more you grow, the more you invest. And the more you invest, the more you grow. And it's a cycle of ever-increasing maturity in your Christian life, which means laying up treasures in heaven and enjoying joy in Christ now here on earth. Both of those things happen. And Paul says, I have no shame in asking you for support. You know why? Because it's not about me. It's not about my private jet that you're trying to fund. It's about you growing in maturity now, experiencing joy in Christ now, and doing that to the point that you're laying up more treasures in heaven where it can never be taken away. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Let's get one illustration of this before we move to our next point. Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 16. Jesus tells a parable here. I'm not going to explain this. It's self-explanatory, but let's just look at it. Then Jesus told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grains and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. So here's a man who just basically, in some ways, not by gambling, 
which would be a sin, sinful, sinful to gamble, but by just working hard, but he kind of, in a sense, hit the lottery. Not, again, not, you know, just his investments grew. It's like if you invest stocks and all of a sudden you invested in Facebook when it was almost worth nothing, um, and then now it's worth a lot, and you just, you, you invest $1,000 and you get $10 million back. That kind of extravagant growth. And what does this guy say? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to store it all up. I'm going to save it all. I'm going to store it all up. And so what does God say in verse 20? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God gives you resources. He's not trying to keep you poor. But he gives you resources so that you can lay up treasures in heaven. He's giving you opportunity. And you don't know when you're going to die. But Paul says to the church in Philippi, I say to the church here, Bethany Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, you have done well in investing in the kingdom. And I tell you to invest still more. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. You are citizens of heaven, not citizens of this earth. This is an old, cursed earth. We have a mission here to make Christ known. Our time is limited. So let us set our mind on things above as we keep giving for the cause of increasing our account. For our church family, this means that we need models in this church of those who have this heavenly mindset. That's how we get discipled, by mature Christians in our church who have this heavenly mindset. May all of our members have this heavenly mindset. If you're not a Christian, here's a question for you. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world, you get $10 billion, you strike gold, you strike oil, you get rich for the next 30 years, and then for the next 30 billion ages of years, you are in hell under God's judgment for your sins. What, what good is it? What are your goals in life? What are the, what's the good you're trying to accomplish? And what good is it if you get everything you want, and in the end, you face judgment for eternity? Brothers and sisters, you've invested well. Invest yourself still more because it brings joy to others. It accomplishes good, and it increases your fruit. Third, or fourth, fourth reason why you are to invest yourself, is because you have pleased God. You please God with your investment, with giving of yourself, with sharing your life. You've pleased God by sacrificially sharing. Look at verse 18. Go back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received everything from Epaphroditus, what you provided, so I got, I got all that. But you know what you guys gave me, verse 18? It is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When you have given, brothers and sisters, and you have given, that pleases God. God can find pleasure in us. It's not apart from Christ. It's through Christ, but we please God. We can actually make God angry. We can displease God with our lives, and we can please God with our lives. And brothers and sisters, in your giving, in your investing as you have, you have pleased God. It has been a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. What does he mean here by fragrant offering? This, this idea of fragrant offering, it's said a, different, a few different times in the Bible. When Noah came out of the ark, 
He, he, he gave a sacrifice, and that was a fragrant offering, pleasing to God. The Levitical sacrifices of the priests were fragrant offerings to God. In Ezekiel 20, verses 40 and 41, the people of God, when they're restored from exile, when they're going to be brought back under the new covenant, they are a fragrant offering. The people themselves are a fragrant offering to God. And here, the gift of the Philippians for Paul to meet his needs as he's spreading the gospel is a fragrant offering, pleasing to God. And the most Fragrant of all offerings to God is in Ephesians chapter 5. So turn there. You're in Philippians. Just turn to the left to Ephesians. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Ephesians 5, 2. Has this idea of fragrant offering right here. It's in the text. Look at Ephesians 5, 2. Paul says, walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So Paul gave himself, or Christ gave himself for us a what? A sacrificial and... Fragrant offering to God. What is the most fragrant of all offerings? The fragrant offering that makes all other offerings fragrant offerings. The sacrifice of the Son of God. Christ loves us. He loved us and gave himself for us. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. The gospel is not our offering to God. It is God's offering to God. It's the Son of God who came because we were sinners. So if you're not a Christian, listen to this. This is the main message of Christianity, that God made us to enjoy him and to know him. And yet because of our sin, because of our disobedience, because of our selfishness, because of our self-centeredness, we have rebelled against God. And the penalty for rebelling against God, the sentence, the punishment is death, eternal death, condemnation, damnation. When we say God damn you, The reason why we don't say that regular is because we want to reserve that language for the most extreme of circumstances. But this this is the most extreme of circumstances. Because of your sin, you are damned by God. You are damned to eternal hell. That is the consequence of my sin and your sin. And we're all guilty and we're all damned. Here's the good news. We just read it here in in chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Christ went to the cross and was damned for us. He took the condemnation. He took your damnation. When he died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead, if, big if here, if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the offer God has for you. Turn from your sins Turn from your goodness, turn from your religion, turn from your righteousness and trust in Christ alone and you will have eternal life. You will have forgiveness. You will have Christ's righteousness. You will, he'll give you the Holy Spirit and you will be made part of God's family. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are united to Jesus. All that damnation goes on him and all his, all his reward and righteousness goes on you. That's a sweet exchange, isn't it? So if you're not a Christian, God is calling you this morning to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. If you're a child this morning, if you're a kid this morning, and you've grown up in church, kids, you need to realize that even today you can trust in Jesus and turn from your sins and be saved. That is the fragrant offering of all fragrant offerings. Christ's death for us. And that pleases God and it saves us. And then from that fragrant offering, now we, we partner in the gospel. We don't do the gospel. Christ did the gospel. We partner in spreading that gospel and that itself is a fragrant offering. And our fragrant offering, it costs us something, doesn't it? When we talk about a sacrifice, the word sacrifice means something has to die, right? Part of us has to die. It costs us something. Do you remember the story of King David? 
King David um, had this plague that, that God was judging Israel with. And then um, he, God stopped the plague right over Jerusalem. And David said, I need to make a sacrifice to God. I need to make an offering to God. And so he went to the threshing floor of a man um, named um, Ornan. And he said, Ornan, I need to buy this, this, this um, threshing floor off you. I need to make an altar to God right here. That's actually going to be the place where the temple is going to be built. I need to make an offering right here. And so Ornan said, uh, you, well, you're the king. Of course, my, your majesty, you can have it. Go take it. It's yours. I mean, you're the king. And he says, no, no. Let me just quote here. He says in 1 Chronicles 21, 24, David answered, no, I insist on paying the full price. For I will not take for the Lord what belongs to you or offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not do that. I will offer something that costs me something. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. And that pleases God when we offer to God things that cost us something. Isn't that what Romans 12 says? Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. We please God with our sacrifice. And Paul says, you're giving, brothers and sisters in Philippi, you're giving Bethany Baptist Church, that pleases God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So we sacrifice in giving to God, but God is a rewarder. Do we outgive God? Do we outbless God? No. So is it a sacrifice? In one sense, it's a sacrifice because it hurts. But in another sense, we don't give God. We actually win in the end. We're laying up treasures in heaven. So here's what sacrifice means according to the New Testament. Sacrifice means, or here's my exhortation to you. Sacrifice means sacrificing your lesser joys for your greater joys. That's what sacrifice is. You sacrifice, I mean, could you use the money that you've given this last year? What if you got all your offering back from the year? Could you use that? Is there anything you can use that for? Would that be helpful for some of your financial situation? Sure. Could be, right? It could be. But yet you give up your lesser joy. It would be helpful. But I'll give up that lesser joy for the greater joy of investing in the kingdom, of spreading the gospel, of of getting closer to God, of not being materialistic. I will give up my lesser joy for my greater joy. And it's a sacrifice. It still hurts. We still feel the pinch. And yet the greater joy always outweighs. And so it's a no-brainer in one sense, okay? And so let's praise God that he can delight in us and that we can please him as his children, even as we're sacrificing lesser joys for him, our greatest joy. And children, you need to know this as children growing up in this church, you live to not, not to please your parents. Here, their sacrifice pleased God. And guess what, kids? You live to please God ultimately. That doesn't mean you should make your parents angry on purpose, but... Your ultimate purpose is not to please your parents. It's to please God. Always, always pleasing God. So, brothers and sisters, you've invested yourself well. Invest yourself more. Why? It brings joy to people. It accomplishes good. It bears eternal fruit and treasures. It brings pleasure to God. Fifthly, fifthly, verse 19. Because you have and you will experience God's provision. Why do you give? Why do you invest? Because you have and you will experience God providing for you. Hasn't God taken care of you? Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God supplies his suppliers. You supply people with the gospel. You supply people with spreading the gospel by financing the gospel, by supporting the gospel, by resourcing the gospel. And God supplies all of your needs. Does God supply all of our needs? All of them? All? I'm using the word all very intentionally here. All of them? What about Paul when he's in prison and he's about to, and then actually, be executed? When his head's about to get sliced off, which is what the church said, which is according to church tradition, that's how Paul died. He was beheaded. Did God provide for his needs as he was being beheaded? What about the Christian being starved to death in prison? Maybe even as we speak, somewhere in the world. There are Christians suffering right now, but Christians being starved, literally. Don't they need food? Isn't that one of their needs? And yet they're not being provided food in prison for the gospel. I thought God supplies all their needs, PJ. Why are they dying in prison? Don't they need food? Isn't Philippians 4.19 God's word? Isn't it true? What about Pastor Paul in Tanzania? Let me read to you. A, a pastor who was killed for showing the Jesus film in Tanzania in July. A pastor working in a remote area of Tanzania was attacked by angry villagers while showing the Jesus film. Pastor Paul Alaru was described as influential in his community, but he angered some tribal leaders by speaking out against customs like female circumcision and tribal religious practices. While the pastor was showing the Jesus film at the end of July, a group of warriors from the village interrupted the movie and began beating those who gathered to watch. Pastor Aloru was speared through the chest and later died from an infection of the wound. Couldn't God not have provided the right antibiotics or enough effective antibiotics to, to, to take care of the infection? Doesn't God supply all the needs? Doesn't he supply all of Pastor Paul's needs? It says here we should pray for them, and we'll pray for them tonight. You should come back to Sunday evening for our prayer meeting when we pray for these brothers and sisters. You could pray for them um, as well. But the point, my question here is, does God really supply all of our needs? I mean, why are these things happening if God supplies all our needs? Will God provide for the needs of the Philippians as they sacrificially give? Will God supply for your needs as you sacrificially give? Some people go as missionaries. I was reading on persecution.com, others who are scared for their children. You go there and your children need education, but you're being persecuted. Well, what do you do? Isn't God going to supply all your needs? Does God supply all of our needs? Yes, we know that. But it, it changes or it challenges us on what we mean by the word need, right? What do we actually need? What do we actually need? Ephesians 2.10 says we're prepared for good, good works. God, we need Christ. We need God. God says, uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's no one on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the portion and strength of my life. God is who we need. We don't need health. At the end of the day, we don't need family at the end of the day. We don't need error at the end of the day. What we need is God. Who we need is God. And God promises us not only to give us himself, but to give us himself through all these other things in our lives. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. I don't need to live. But if I'm living, as long as I'm alive, I want Christ to be exalted in my body. I'm going to pour myself out for your progress and join the faith so that as many people hear about Christ and as many people grow in Christ as possible. Because that's my need. I Remember, everything is done, right? Everything is lost for the sake of knowing who? Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's what I need. That's all I need. 
And yet he supplies me with him, even joy in him, through your giving. But at the end of the day, he supplies all my needs. And if I need to die, if I need to be beheaded, if I need an ax to the neck to be with Christ, then that's what I need. But my God will supply all my needs. And because God supplies all my needs, I am free to give and invest my life. That's the logic here. That's the point here. That when you know that God has provided, why, why have you given? Because God has provided for you. Why are you going to keep giving? Because God will always provide for you. And that's what Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. You said, PJ, you skipped through one of my favorite verses. You didn't even talk about it. Well, let's talk about it now. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever circumstances I find myself to be content. I know how to do with a little. I know how to do with a lot. I know in any and all circumstances the secret of being content. I learned it. Whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able, I am strengthened in all circumstances to be content through him who strengthens me. That's the point. It, verse 13 is not, I can, you know, put on your, your, your shoe when you're playing a sport, and that's what, you know, it's the most abused verse in sports, all right? Philippians 4.13, I can win a championship, I can do this through him who strengthens me. Well, you didn't, right? I mean, not everyone did. I mean, there's Christians on both sides of the, on, on both teams, right? Like, what does it mean I can do all things? That is not a blanket statement. Look at the context. What is he saying? I am strengthened in all circumstances, to be content through him who strengthens me. He supplies all my needs. He strengthens my soul. He gives me joy in him. He gives me church family. He gives me people resourcing me. And in all of these things, even if I have nothing, even if I'm starving, I have learned the secret of being content. So brothers and sisters, learn contentment. Learn contentment beyond the shifting circumstances. The real tests of your contentment is when you're in adversity, when you have little, but that's not the only test. You know what's another test? When you're in prosperity, when you have much. Those are two different tests. You're not, you, you don't, you know, um, it's not just poor people who need to learn contentment, right? Don't rich people need to learn contentment? Can't you be rich and still greedy? Can't you still be rich and, and have no peace in your heart? Yes. Contentment is not on the shifting circumstances of your bank account. Contentment is in Christ who strengthens you, who saves you, who supplies your needs, who gives you a church family, who gives you a great commission, and who gives you opportunities to invest yourself in that gospel commission. That's where we learn contentment. And so this promise for Paul is a promise for us all. Supply for everything we need. So brothers and sisters, trust Christ to meet your needs. Let God supply your needs. And then, Brothers and sisters, here's a challenge as a church family. If we're going to grow as a, a church family, you need to get this as, a member, as members of this church. So BBC, Bethany Baptist Church members, listen up. You need to learn to open your mouth and communicate your needs. In our culture of America, in a church culture, and even in our... Satan has gotten saints to shut their mouths and be embarrassed about real needs they have. And that does not bode well for a healthy church. We are here to help each other. We're the family of God helping each other travel this earthly sod, right? So we share our needs. We communicate our needs. And we deal with all the selfishness and sin and judgmentalism that comes up with all that mess as we deal with it as a church family. But we deal with it. 
You can't read Philippians 4.19, God shall supply all my needs, and then we look down on members when they actually communicate their needs. How are they supposed to apply this verse if they can't communicate it, right? Let us be a church. And we are. We, we're growing in this. We have done this, and we'll keep doing it. We have. You know, let us be a church where it is not a shame to share your needs, and, it is, and, no, and no one shames you for sharing your needs. Where it's encouraged, and people are strengthened by it. If you're not a Christian, here you need to know this. God meets your greatest need. Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. Our greatest need is to have that condemnation removed. And Christ does it through his death and resurrection, and he invites you to trust in him today. Kids, what do you need? You have all kinds of needs, kids, right? You need to ask God for what you need, and then trust God to meet your needs as he defines your needs. Because just, just kids, just so you know, parents have the same problem. We think we need things we don't need, right? We know kids, kids sometimes you, you think you need things and the parents say you don't need it. Us parents, we have the same problem. We, we have things we think we need that we don't need. But you need to keep asking God for your needs and then trust him to define what your needs are. All right, so you've invested yourself well. Invest yourself more because it brings joy to other Christians. It accomplishes good. It bears fruit for eternity on your account. It brings pleasure to God because God provides your need. And lastly, verse 20, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, verse 20, because it glorifies God. It glorifies God. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is our Father, loving and giving life to His Son in the fellowship of His Holy Spirit. God is a personal community of love, and He gets glory through our giving. God's glory is is the recognition and expression of His excellence, reflected and credited and celebrated right back to Him. So we want, in all of our giving, to glorify God. That's why we give, because we want God's glory to be on display, right? We want God's glory to be magnified. And not just now, but it says here in the verse, forever and ever. Everything is to God's glory, including our investing of our lives. So we've invested well. Let us invest still more. You know, the call of this passage is simple, right? Um, We are to generously, sacrificially invest ourselves with contentment and joy, trusting God to supply all our needs. Simple, right? But what, what is our actually like? What's our track record like, though? Instead, we're often dominated by stinginess and by worry. Don't we worry a lot? We worry. We're not content and trusting God. We're dominated by stinginess, mismanagement of funds. And what happens at the end of the day is we actually shrink in our investment for the kingdom. But praise God that Jesus walked with contentment and he learned the secret of being content. That Jesus trusted God to supply all his needs. So he didn't learn to just do with much. Jesus even walked with little, didn't he, on that cross? When he said on that prayer, let this cup be what? Passed from me. And then he went on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Christ trusted the Father and he learned how to do with little. The worse than little. The most condemnation that any being has ever been condemned with. Christ became poor for us. He invested or divested himself sacrificially on the cross to supply us all of our needs of forgiveness, justification, and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the one who lived out Philippians 4, 10 through 20. He's the one who cares for us. He's the one who accomplished ultimate good for us. He's the one who has the greatest reward given to his account. He's the one who pleased God. He's the one who trusted God's provision. He's the one who glorifies God with his life, death, and resurrection. And now that Jesus did that for us, we have the power and the grace and the strength to do that for others. We don't pay for anyone's sins. We rest in Christ's 
sacrifice for us, and we joyfully invest ourselves for others with great contentment. So, brothers, if you do this, if you don't do this, you'll wish you did, right? You'll wish you did on Judgment Day. You'll have regrets and discourage, and you might even discourage other people in the gospel movement. We are moving the gospel around here, and you could discourage others by your lack of participation and investment. But if you invest yourself, if you continue to give sacrificially as you have been, you'll encourage the saints, you'll bring joy to them, you'll lay up treasures in heaven and your eternal reward, and Christ will be magnified, and God will smile on what we do in these days. You've invested yourselves well, brothers and sisters. Invest yourself still more. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus who invested himself, the ultimate investment, the ultimate giver. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us and for rising for us. We praise you that you trusted the Father to supply all your needs even when he was the one cutting you off at the cross. We praise you that you have gladly been a fragrant offering for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would treasure you more, that we would be so captivated by your kindness and your love and your beauty and your majesty that we would let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, your truth abideth still, and your kingdom is forever. So Father, be glorified with our investments as a church family. We pray for those who are not Christian, that they would come to have their supply met in you. We pray for the Christians here who aren't part of a church family, that you would partner them with the church, that they would join as members of a church where they too can partner and invest their lives for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.